0: When the Second World War broke against the shores of North Africa, a young British citizen living in East Africa answered the call to arms from his mother country and he decided to join the Royal Air Force. So he went off to his training squadron and as a tall man, he'd hoped he would end up in a bomber but he ended up in a fighter pilot, as a fighter pilot. And he was given a small out-of-date biplane called a Gloucester Gladiator to take and join up with his combat squadron in North Africa to fight against the terrifying Luftwaffe and their superior planes. So with zero time in combat yet, this young pilot took off from his training squadron and followed the directions that he'd been given to link up with his combat squadron in the desert of North Africa. Along the way, he began to become a little bit concerned because the directions didn't seem to be leading particularly anywhere. He reached the end point of his directions and found desert beneath him and no airstrip in sight. So circling around, he eventually ran out of fuel and crashed among the rocks. He survived the crash. He crawled from the wreckage of his plane as the machine guns were cooking off, hiding behind a rock, and he eventually lost consciousness, only to regain consciousness a few days later in a hospital in Alexandria, having been seen by frontline British soldiers and rescued by his own men. The problem that he experienced when he awoke was that he had suffered such trauma to his head, such severe skull fractures, that he couldn't see. His face was swelled to the point where his eyes were inoperable, and the doctors weren't sure he would ever see. He became used to living in darkness, to only hearing and never seeing. Until one day, as the nurse was tending to his face, a bright golden ray broke through the darkness, reflecting off of her insignia on her collar, and he never forgot that first sight. He thought he was seeing an angel. Turns out he was seeing the one who was rescuing him from his pain. Israel, at the start of the story, is in a fairly similar position to the young Roald doll here. They had turned aside after foreign gods. They had taken the Ark of the Covenant Just shortly before this, the beginning of 1 Samuel, and they'd taken into battle against the Philistines, thinking that this could be used as a good luck charm. The Philistines even responded well to the fact that the living God was with Israel, and they they said, steal yourselves for actions. Be men, Philistines. They were afraid. But the Lord knew that Israel was not bringing the ark into battle in faith, and the Philistines defeated Israel and took the ark. The Ark afflicted the Philistines, so they wanted to get rid of it, and they gave it back to somebody else. And the Ark was no longer in the tabernacle. And 20 years had elapsed. 20 years with the visible presence of God gone from among the people of Israel. And this is where the story picks up, where their eyes are just being opened to the reality of their situation. And that first ray of light is breaking through as they realize what has happened. And so this brings us to verse 3 where we have the call to repentance that will go through verse 6. And see, we have Samuel. The last time we'd seen Samuel, he was a young boy being raised by the priest Eli in the tabernacle, learning the ways of the Lord from an early age. He was a child promised to the Lord. And Eli has gone now. He has died, and Samuel returns the story as a man as a judge of Israel, as a prophet of Israel, and as their priest. And after this long absence, the people of Israel recognized that they have nowhere to turn but to the man of God to ask, how do we fix this great evil that we have done? See, in the, in the law of Moses, there was clear and simple repercussion for idolatry. In Deuteronomy 17, if an individual Israelite commits idolatry, he was to be taken outside of the camp and stoned, and thus purge the evil from the midst of Israel. But what if the entire nation of Israel turns aside after false gods? Then what do they do? Is there an offering that they can offer? Is there something that Moses has given them to deal with this? No, there isn't. In fact, what they've been given is the covenant stipulations of Deuteronomy 28 the covenant curses. And in their mind, as they fear this Philistine attack, this great and powerful army that's right on their western border. They have to be hearing that they will go into battle one way against their enemy and be driven out seven ways from before their enemy. This is the promise of the covenant. This is what their elders had said, all this we will do, and had the blood splashed upon them. This, they knew, was what God had said. And yet, what does their priest tell them? Samuel says, if you are returning to the Lord your God, then you must do three things. You have three commands here to Israel, three imperatives. Put away the idols, direct your heart to the Lord, and serve him only. And this forms a bit of a sandwich of commands, if you will. The meat of the sandwich being this directing of the heart. Putting away the idols was easy to see. These were physical idols that the Israelites would carry with them as they went about. These were idols that they would look at and hold and pray to. And Samuel tells them, get them away from you, not hide them. Not set them down, but put them away from amongst your midst. And the third command is to serve the Lord only. And this also is very visible outwardly. For they knew the tabernacle worship. They knew what was expected of them. They knew the right sacrifices to offer, the right offerings to bring, the prayers, the observances. This would be easy to see if Israel would do these two things. But what of the middle one? What of directing their heart to God? This, this command is, is almost an interesting, it, well, it is an interesting word that they use because it's not direct in the sense of point. It's not direct in the sense of look at God. It's the direct, it's the same word that's used to establish a covenant after it's been cut, after it's been ratified. Establish your heart upon the Lord is what Samuel tells the Israelites. And this is the central motif. This is the central aspect of the command. Because if the heart is established upon the Lord, then of course they'll put away the idols and of course they'll serve him only. And so, God's mercy is in view here from Samuel. This Lord had passed before Moses and proclaimed his covenant faithfulness and his mercy is showing himself to be true to who he said he is. And so how will Israel respond in this story? Will they respond as they've done throughout the entire judge's cycle up to this point, getting worse and worse and worse, or will they finally turn and obey the Lord? And we see that the author does not leave us in suspense. Immediately, the Israelites put away the idols, and immediately they serve the Lord only. And more than that even, in verse five, Samuel says, gather at Mizpah, and they gather at Mizpah. They're obedient And they draw out water and pour it out before the Lord and they fast and they confess their sins. They show their affliction, their brokenness over their sin and they ask the Lord to forgive them. No longer hiding, no longer seeking to find some other way around. No, they've come to the man of God. They've heard the word of God and they are now acting correctly. Finally, after all the stories of judges, they're doing what God has told them to do. And so perhaps they might think, Well, this is the time for the blessing. We've done what you asked, Lord. Now deliver us from the hand of the Philistines. That was your end of the bargain. And this takes us to verse 7 through 11, the battle. And this, the author gives us a series of scene shifts to see different places where things are happening in rapid succession, it seems. And we hear that the Philistines find out that Israel is gathered at Mizpah. And this... It helps now to know a little bit about Mizpah. See, Mizpah would later be fortified under King Asa, but now it's just a town. It's a town in the tribal land allocated to Benjamin, a town that is not defensible, a town that you come up over the high ground from the Philistine area at the coast and then down to Mizpah. They've ceded the high ground to their enemy, and the Philistines hear this, that they're all gathered there, that they're afflicting themselves and fasting, and you can practically see the evil grin on the face of the Philistine commander as he realizes that this irritating country that has been standing in their way is finally in a position to be crushed. Finally, their archers can outrange them. Finally, they can time their attacks so that the sun is in the eyes of the Israelites. Finally, everything is in place for the Philistines. And they do not wait. They do not hesitate. They determine that the time has come to attack. And so, even... Now, as then, it takes a while to get an army on the march and the Israelites get wind that the Philistines are coming. And they respond as any sane person would probably respond finding out that an army was coming to kill them and all the people that they know and love. They are afraid. And this is the time where they actually get to show what their heart is grounded upon or more precisely, on whom their heart is grounded. And they turn to Samuel This man whom they know to be faithful to the Lord and they ask him as their mediator to cry out to the Lord for them. They know they have no standing before the Lord anymore. They know that they can't approach the Lord. They know they have to go through their priest. And what does Samuel do? But he offers the burnt offering, this free will offering, this demonstration of faith, this offering that was supposed to be offered before battle to show that the Israelites were trusting in the Lord. And he cries out to the Lord, You see, the the Israelites have now taken their faith and turned it into action. They have trusted in the Lord and they have gone and done what the Lord has commanded them to do. And this is the faith that the counselors of Job see when Job tells them, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. This is the faith that Israel has. And this is the faith that would be seen later when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are dragged before Nebuchadnezzar. And he says, what God can save you from me? And they say, Our God can. And even if He does not, we will not worship you. You see, this is the faith that Scripture commands, the faith that is not afraid to be acted upon. And now we have this major shift in the story. As up until this point, everything had been done toward God, about God, on behalf of God. But now, as Samuel is crying out to the Lord, as the smoke of the burnt offering is ascending to the Lord, God acts. He is now the subject of the verb. He now shows himself to be powerful and he answers Samuel. And he throws the Philistine army into confusion by thundering against them. And this shows God's power against the Philistine army. And it also shows a little bit of irony because Israel had been worshiping Baal. And Baal was this storm god of the ancient world. He's depicted in carvings as holding this lightning staff And everyone knew that Baal was the one who could thunder. And yet, as the text says, not even generally does God thunder against the Philistines, but the covenant God, Yahweh, the Lord, thunders against the Philistines and shows himself to be powerful to save his people. All the false gods could do nothing because they are nothing. And Israel is so successful as a result of this. Because of God's action, they turn and they pursue the Philistines. And this, again, gets lost to us, not living in this area. But Beth Car is uphill from Mizpah. I don't know if you like to run. I hate running. But if you run uphill, it's a lot harder. And it's a lot harder to run uphill chasing somebody. And now we see that far from just merely squeaking by a victory... This is the kind of victory that's promised in the covenant blessings of Deuteronomy 28. This is the enemies of Israel going into battle one way against them, and the enemies driven, being driven out seven ways from before them. And we see that God answers powerfully his people. And if you were an Israelite there, perhaps you'd think this is the end of the story now, because the bargain was laid out at the very beginning. Put away the idols, direct your heart to the Lord, and serve him, and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. And now the Philistines are gone. This must be the end of God's mercies. But verses 12 through 17 show us this greater blessing, and that God's promises are by no means his limitations. And the first thing that Samuel does after this has elapsed is that he takes a stone and sets it up between Mizpah and Shen, these two major cities in the tribe of Benjamin, this route that would have been well-traveled by Israelites. And he sets it up there calling it Ebenezer and your your Bible may footnote it and say stone of help because literally Ebenezer is Hebrew for stone of help. And he sets this up as an act of mercy and grace toward the Israelites because God knows that like us today the Israelites then were a forgetful people. And the memory of seeing the Philistines it would come over the hill, blackening the slopes, bringing death and destruction, and yet being turned back by the singular voice of God, that memory would fade and the people would forget and they would be enticed after false ways once more. And so Samuel sets up this stone on the road so that every Israelite family that drives past, that walks past, that moses along the route has to ask, why is there a stone here? what is this doing here? And every Israelite parent would have to say, well, there was a battle. The Philistines were coming to kill us. We were outnumbered in a bad situation and they were utterly and completely defeated from before us by the act of God alone. And you see that God has been faithful to remind the Israelites with this stone of help, this rock of remembrance, that they might remember the act of God And yet, beyond this, God had told them that he would deliver them from the hands of the Philistines. And yet, beyond this, the Philistines stay out of the land all the time of Samuel. This was beyond anything that God had promised to them. And Israel is restored to their cities and the land that the Philistines had taken from them beyond what God had promised to them. And they even have peace with the Amorites who weren't even in the bargain. And God has acted powerfully to show that the right worship that he has instituted is looked upon favorably and that he will be faithful to his covenant and bless them because God's name is as the covenant God he is. And Israel, though forgetful when reminded, returns to him and he blesses them. And we see even beyond the geopolitical might of Israel and their little kingdom We see that God has given them yet another gift in their judge, Samuel, who is this great contrast to the man who'd come before him, Eli, and his two good-for-nothing sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who had abused the tabernacle, abused the people of God, who had defiled God's name and dragged it through the mud, and for that they had died. And now we have this judge standing in his rightful place in Israel, looking after God's people, traveling from town to town to town to make sure that fair and good government, that the voice of God is heard in their issues, in their problems, to solve their disputes. And what a blessing that is. And God blesses this time, and Samuel builds more altars so that people might worship him rightly. And then the story is over. And if you read ahead, you'll see that Israel then goes on to demand a king. But for now, the story is over. And so we have to ask, why is it in our Bible? Why is this, albeit very interesting story about a battle about 3,000 years ago in a land that we do not live in, why is it here, and why does it matter to us today, here in California? Well, the, the sad truth is we're not that different from the Israelites We know the covenant Lord, and yet, our hearts are quick to turn after idols. And the same command given to the Israelites is the same command given to us, to repent and to believe, and yet, unlike the Israelites, who looked forward to the Messiah to come, we know his name, we know our Savior, we know Christ Jesus, we know his actions for us now. We know where he is in heaven reigning on our behalf. And as Samuel was the one who had to mediate between Israel and God that their prayers might be heard, 1 Timothy 2.5 tells us there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And if God heard Samuel on behalf of Israel, how much more does he listen to his son in whom we are hidden? And brothers and sisters, this this is tremendous hope for us. This is everything that we could have needed. This is everything Israel didn't know they needed. This is everything they looked forward to vaguely, wondering who this Redeemer was to come, and we know. And so it's not surprising to us that when Christ begins his ministry in Matthew, he begins with almost the same words that Samuel gives to the Israelites, repent, repent. Direct your heart to the Lord. It's not that far from repent, is it? Trust the Lord, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so we see that this, this call to repentance and faith is not a call that was just for Israel 3,000 years ago, nor was it just a call at our conversion, at our moment of coming to faith in Christ. This call to repentance and faith, as these Israelites learned, is a daily call for each of us to ever turn aside from our sin and trust in Christ. And we ask, how often do we need to repent? How often can God possibly forgive us? How often could he forgive Israel? Well, the disciples asked that to Christ. How often do I have to forgive a man who sins against me? Seven times, which seems like a lot. If you've been sinned against in the same way seven times by the same person, you'd say, This is getting ridiculous. And yet Christ takes this silly question and gives it a serious answer and says, No, not seven times, 77 times. You forgive abundantly. You forgive because you've been forgiven abundantly. In Christ, we have forgiveness. And so, as 1 John tells us, we can love because Christ first loved us. And that's what Samuel couldn't quite have seen yet. He knew and trusted in the Lord, but he didn't realize how good it would actually be to know the Redeemer. Standing on this side of Calvary, we know that that truth. And yet there is another aspect to this story. There is another point at which the Israelites must have thought the story was going to be over, and that's right after they did everything God told them to do and yet the Philistines came and so we see that God gives these trials this great trial to the Philistines of to the Israelites through the Philistines and he doesn't do it so that he might find out something about Israel God did not learn something that day about Israel this God who knows all things who knows the heart of man didn't find out if Israel was faithful that day. He wasn't reading the news. Instead, Israel found out that their heart was grounded upon the Lord, that it was directed to the Lord, that it was established upon the Lord, and that they were trusting him because when the trials came, when the fiery trial came upon them, as First Peter tells us to expect, they turned to the Lord. And that is exactly what we ought to do as well. And we can because we have Christ in heaven on our behalf. As we have read in 1 Peter, we are being built up as living stones. And what kind of stones are we being built into, though? Perhaps if you've gone out to a playground as a youth, or you are a youth, you've picked up a rock and tried to break it, and eventually you find one that you can break. And it's very exciting for a young boy because you must be really, really strong. But is that really the case, or is that just a really, really weak rock? I would say the latter. Is that what God calls us to be as living stones, broken by the first trial that comes our way? No. He calls us to be living stones, having passed through the fire of trial time and again. He calls us to be living stones that he will not fail to bring to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Jesus. And so we can repent, we can believe, we can because God, the God who saved Israel that dusty day on the slopes of the mountains south of Jerusalem, that same God is our God today and his loving kindness is the same. And our God is the same yesterday and today and forever. And so when you see your sin, how do you respond Do you turn in repentance and faith? Because if not, you can in Christ. And you know the sweet reconciliation that can only be had through the blood of the Lamb. The greater son of David. When you see the Philistines then coming over the hill to destroy the strongholds that you've built up, after you've done everything that God commanded you to do, how do you respond? Do you say God must not love me now? Or does God perhaps recognize that you need to see a trial to show you your faith, to strengthen your assurance? It's been famously said that calm seas never made a good sailor. And as Spurgeon once said, I've learned to kiss the rock, the wave that casts me upon the rock of ages. And so we can place our trust in the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. We can trust in Christ Jesus who for our sake bore the weight of our sin, that we might have reconciliation with God. So where is your heart? Either it is grounded on the Lord, on the rock of ages, or it is in sand. But if you turn to God, he will answer you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you knowing that you are holy, holy, holy and that we are not. And so we thank you that we have standing before you by your son who even now intercedes for us